Welcome to the Why on Earth Community's Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Today, I'm so happy we have the opportunity to visit with Addison Luck. Hey, Addison. Hey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we're here right by Boulder Creek. You can probably hear it and uh, see it uh, in the background. And uh, there's a reason we're here. We'll, we'll get to that in just a few moments. Before we dive in, I want to share with you a little bit about Addison. Uh, he grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia, and is a rising senior at Yale University, majoring in environmental studies and history. He is currently an Earth Law Associate for the Earth Law Center and the Law and Policy Intern for Boulder Rights of Nature, both of which are environmental nonprofits that have the goal of legally recognizing the intrinsic rights of nature. The Earth Law Center has a variety of projects and campaigns centered around the rights of nature, while the Boulder Rights of Nature group is more focused on specific campaigns within Boulder City and County. After graduating, Addison hopes to attend a law school with a strong environmental law program to continue exploring the rights of nature and other legal tools to protect the environment. So it's so great the work you're doing, Addison, and I'm so excited to have this conversation today and to be able to share it with our audience. I guess by way of uh, kicking off, I want to ask you, uh, what the heck are rights of nature? What, what is this? Why do we need it? Why do we need to be thinking about this? Yeah, so I guess it may sound a bit funny at first, but um, I guess the rights of nature generally is a new environmental law movement where nature, so that can mean specific ecosystems or specific environmental features such as a river are given legal standing in court and are able to represent themselves as represented by maybe a guardian um, against an in incoming environmental doom or damage. And so this movement started in, well, putting aside a lot of indigenous communities that have believed and followed the rights of nature for thousands of years, this modern movement has been introduced to Western law basically in the 70s and since then there's been a variety of countries and probably like more than 20 communities in the U.S. that have recognized the intrinsic rights of nature through a municipal ordinance, charter, federal constitution, through like a variety of legal forms. This is so interesting and so, you know, basically, of course, here in the United States, we take a lot of our legal foundation from the British uh, system of law and uh, we don't have in this system a mechanism really to recognize or incorporate the well-being of nature, if you will. It's a loose use of those terms, perhaps, but uh, and, and we've got some laws on the books that attempt to take care of nature, but it, it sounds like in some ways, or perhaps even in many ways, the laws we have, such as the Endangered Species Act uh, and others, uh, the Clean Water Act, perhaps aren't really robust enough to deal with what's happening in these times. Is that is that is that an accurate thing to suggest? Yeah, that's how I feel. And I guess before I talk about that, I should just mention that I'm really not an, a lawyer or I don't have that much experience. I'm hoping to go to law school eventually. But um, yeah. so I just I apologize if I offend anybody or I get some facts wrong. But basically, I think it's obvious or it's pretty evident to everyone in this world 
no matter if you have law experience or not, that we're kind of in, we're facing a huge environmental crisis right now that has, basically, has not been the result of our environmental laws, but have basically not been solved by our environmental laws. And I find it pretty interesting that, at least in the US and a lot of other Western modern countries, we didn't really have very strong environmental laws before the 1960s and 70s. Um, and so during that time, there was like obviously a huge environmental outcry, lots of crazy environmental damages that were happening. It's like specifically in the US, like the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, the Santa Barbara oil spill, uh, like DDT and Rachel Carson, and there's like creation of the first Earth Day. So there's kind of like a public outcry that we need environmental laws. And it's, it's kind of funny history actually, because I think at, at the start of the 70s, there was a push by a few people to sort of incorporate the rights of nature into American law, but rather than do that, we did, or the government basically enacted all of our existing environmental laws that we still have today, like Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act, uh, Federal Safe Water Drinking Act, um, all of those sorts of laws. And although they were really groundbreaking at the time, I think that it's just obvious that they have not really solved the environmental crisis that we're affected with today. And basically, I think that kind of has happened because they have limited the amount of pollution, extraction, extinction, or damage that can occur to a specific ecosystem before they really kick in. And I guess that compares a little bit with rights of nature because the, uh, a goal of rights of nature is to find a much better balance in like outlawing a lot of really harmful activities that can happen to a river or to an ecosystem rather than limiting that activity. It's so interesting. So it seems like a lot of the the laws that we've enacted over the last generation or two, going back to the 70s approximately, uh, have to do with quantitative limits, right? Like, you, you can pollute, but only up to this level, uh, into the air, or discharge heavy metals, but only up to this level into the river. Or uh, we're not gonna respond on uh, uh, protection of species until they're this close to going extinct, which is quite a uh, dangerous threshold to be dealing with. So I'm just curious in terms of this being a quantitative approach, and of course there's been a lot of good that has come from these, these rules and regulations, um, but it sounds like it, in, a, in a deeper sense it's not enough. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I guess a kind of funny analogy that maybe is a bit too extreme, but kind of shows a point, I think, that I was thinking of earlier today, was that if you look at some of these laws, which are all really anthropocentric and really like value nature in terms of human uses, so like it's our property or it's our resource that we're used. Um, so I was just look, I was thinking about the Endangered Species Act, which obviously was really revolutionary at its time and very forward thinking you know, in order to protect species that are threatened. But I was thinking if you sort of like apply that same logic to maybe human rights violations, then it would just be like totally absurd and there would be a public outcry. Right. So for example, if you, if there was like an ethnic minor minority in a really powerful country that was being oppressed by the federal government, um, if you applied the endangered species logic to this situation, yeah. it might be something like, okay, if the, if the ethnic, ethnic minority is basically like cleansed to 
a fourth of the current population, then the laws will start kicking in and will outlaw right. any sort of activity, activity that we've been doing. Yeah, and obviously an absurd and a, and a horrific uh, parallel or observation that's yeah. occurring there, right? And yeah, it's, it's definitely not the same case, but I think it shows how we have not necessarily given nature the value that it deserves in our legal system. Yeah. Um, and I guess another way of kind of formulating that is basically right now, I think my understanding is that all of our environmental laws sort of put nature in terms of our use as a resource or as property. Right. And because of that, we can really only litigate on behalf of nature or like represent nature in court if we are economically affected yeah. by some sort of environmental harm. Sure. And I just think that's like inherently a, a wrong way to, to go about protecting nature because let's say let's say I who don't live here in Boulder wanted to protect this river because I saw some sort of like crazy environmental harm that was happening. I, I really wouldn't be able to if I didn't have a house along the river or an economic interest in the river. And the goal of rights of nature is to allow anyone basically the opportunity to protect an environmental feature based on like some sort of incoming zoom. Yes. This is such an interesting approach. I can sense that it is stretching perhaps for a lot of our audience the ways we're even conceiving of our human relationship to this living planet. And I'm struck that uh, you know, when, when our founders uh, framed the legal structures that created our country, the United States, Ben Franklin in particular looked to indigenous wisdom, to the wisdom of the Iroquois League, a uh, confederation of tribes in the Great Lakes, upstate New York area, to Im in use some mechanisms for wisdom and balance in our uh, three-system government, i.e., in this case, the requirement of Congress to consent before going to war. The Iroquois had a mechanism that is the grandmother's council. The grandmothers had to say yes uh, before going to war. And of course, grandmothers are not probably going to say yes to unnecessary or irresponsible wars but if there's a real threat to the family to the tribe they're probably going to want to have that defended yeah. and i'm just i'm so struck that indigenous traditions all around the world have had deep rooted mechanisms to voice uh, to speak on behalf of river and eagle ocean mountain forest tree deer lion whatever it might be and also have had mechanisms to voice, to speak on behalf of the future, the future generations. Some of us are familiar with this notion of seven generations. In this country right now, legally speaking, we don't really have that mechanism. Yeah, I think we've definitely lost that value too, and the legal tool to use it. And that's, I think the overall goal of, rights, of the Rights of Nature movement is really to have a, a shift in, how, in the way people view the world and the, and the values that we have when we're addressing all sorts of issues. And I think legally, or by enacting rights of nature and law, it's a really unique way to sort of influence people to start shifting that way. And just in terms of in, a lot of indigenous cultures that have believed in this, a really neat example of 
a way indigenous cultures belief in this has sort of combined with modern legal tools as in New Zealand yes. and so the New Zealand Maori people the indigenous people there have since I guess they've lived in New Zealand since like 1300 um, but traditionally it's known that they have had a really sort of like intrinsic belief that nature has its own rights and certain environmental features are really that's it's like the basis of their of their societies and so within the past like nine years there have been three or four environmental features in New Zealand that the government has actually recognized in accordance with the Maori beliefs as a as a living person and so a really a famous example is the Wanganui River which is the first river in the world to be granted legal personhood and they've also done this to Te Uruera which was a former national park in Mount Taranaki which is a really beautiful volcanic dome and by recognizing the rights of nature the New Zealand government has sort of acknowledged the traditional Maori beliefs towards nature and sort of fostered a better relationship with the environment and they've also in doing this they've also appointed Maori and Crown officials to act as a guardian on behalf of the river and the former national park in the mountain and those guardians are basically tasked with sort of monitoring the ecosystem and representing it in court and representing it in the decisions that the government is making and so I think it's a really neat way to empower indigenous communities through modern governments and I guess we've also seen that actually sorry if you have a question yeah this is great okay we've also seen that in the U.S. there's been like three or four indigenous communities indigenous tribes that have recognized the rights of nature in their tribal constitution or in their tribal law yeah so just I think about like a week ago, the Yurok tribe in Northern California recognized the rights of the Klamath River, which throws through their tribe, and the White Earth Band of the Ojibwe people in Minnesota, I think Minnesota, have recognized the rights of the Newman, which is the wild rice that grows in there, in it, which they like subsist off of, and the Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin, I believe, has also recognized the rights of nature in their tribal constitution. So there's lots of examples in the U.S. also where this has sort of been fostered by indigenous groups. It's so wonderful, and I, I would add to the list that even within certain corporations who have very strong, dare I say, enlightened leadership are enacting within their own governing bylaws mechanisms to care for the planet and to care for people in the communities in which they're operating. Uh, the B Corp movement, B certification, is one of the mechanisms more and more companies are are utilizing incorporating literally into their uh, legal corpus and of course this includes pretty good sized companies like Patagonia that does about a billion dollars of sales per year and it's so beautiful to see that in communities in corporations there's leadership emerging that is saying yeah we are, we're going to do what we can within our domain within our area of influence to change the way we're making decisions basically yeah definitely so what what's the what's the problem like what's the pushback what's the what's the rub are you are you getting are you getting uh are you getting resistance to this idea yeah definitely i guess it's kind of funny though i think because every conversation that i've had with well, mo almost all conversations I've had with people who don't have much legal experience about rights of nature, they are like, the people who I talk to are really sort of motivated 
and are really like pleased by the idea and they think, wow, that, like, that's the most natural idea to give nature legal rights and standing. It's like, why don't we have that already? But within the legal world, I think, especially people who really know a lot and have like devoted their lives to protecting the environment or to like studying law, teaching law, I think that's where the most resistance happens because they know or they understand the actual challenges that that occur when you do legally recognize a new entity as having rights and having standing. And I think all those challenges are really like really important to acknowledge. But I don't think that the challenges are necessarily strong enough to sort of stop the process of granting of granting nature legal standing. I just think there's something that we'll have to sort of deal with as we do this and sort of like solve as we do this. And I guess some of the bigger challenges that some like law professors and people in the legal world have sort of pointed out to me and to others like through writing is the idea of who will represent nature and like how will we know if that person is adequately representing nature. And so in a lot of places like in New Zealand, the nature or environmental feature is given a guardian to represent nature and that's appointed by the court. And this is kind of similar to how courts deal with people with like an incapacitating illness or right. with a child who can't represent itself in court. Yes. Um, and who are not capable of speaking on their own behalf, yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah. right? The court will grant them a guardian to speak on their behalf. Yes. And so basically a big challenge is determining who is adequate enough to speak for the environment, basically. Yep. And really I think this is an answer that like every community and every area itself will have to answer. And it may be appointing like a local wildlife expert, a local biologist, ecologist in to represent nature adequately. And you gotta, you have to assure that they're not going to be influenced by third parties, and it can't be like a very strong economic interest in anything. It really has to represent nature on its own without any other influencing opinions. Sure. And I think that's the biggest. I, there are definitely other challenges with granting nature legal standing, but yeah. so far, that's the one. That's the one that I found is like the most voiced. I guess. That's really, really interesting. And. and are, are you suggesting also in some communities that the, uh, the the voice is coming not just from a single individual, but is coming from a group of yeah, individuals absolutely. representing something like a river? Or yeah, it could be a guardianship system where yeah. there's like six or seven people appointed from different backgrounds with different interests who probably will not always agree on the best action, yeah. but it just sort of influences or just shows how the conversation can really affect giving nature a voice in, yeah. in public opinion, I think. Yeah. But so this this whole notion of voice, I find uh, to be really important and rich with meaning and really with history. And uh, Addison, you and I were just talking before uh, the camera was rolling about our uh, mutual interest in history. And I've done quite a bit of study, as some of our audience knows, uh, in the realm of uh, German history and philosophy. And, and I'm struck that uh, Immanuel Kant, the great Enlightenment philosopher, was asked, what is this thing called Enlightenment? What is this thing that's happening? And his response was, it is our own liberation from our own self-imposed, Unmündigkeit was the German term, our own self-imposed voicelessness and it turns out our legal traditions coming from Europe have actually a whole lot to do with 
who has a voice in a court of law yeah, and who doesn't. And the truth is, just a couple hundred years ago or even more recently than that, there are all kinds of people who did not have legal voice. Women, many indigenous peoples, uh, peoples of color, peoples enslaved, uh, are examples not too long ago that literally did not have a voice in a court of law. I think we could say we've made some pretty good progress in the last century or two along these lines. That said, we also have, living with us on this great spaceship we call Earth, all sorts of other creatures and critters upon whom we depend for our very existence. Yeah. And I'll dare say our legal system is utterly limited in the sense that we don't yet have a good mechanism for voices to be heard thinking about and representing these other living entities and thinking about and representing future generations. Yeah. And they, these two seem to really go hand in hand from my perspective, having studied a bit of the, the history that's gotten us kind of to where we are today. Yeah, I think one thing that might surprise a lot of people and really surprised me when I learned it was that in the 1890s, the Supreme Court basically granted legal personhood to corporations. Right. And in this case, it was a railway company. Yes. Um, and that was like 70 years before women were granted the right to, yes. to have legal standing in court. And I think that just sort of like highlights how much corporate influence right. the United States and other, and other countries yeah. has basically had in sort of like limited nature's rights. And I guess one also interesting thing about sort of like the judicial perspective towards the rights of nature okay. is, so there's been a couple of court cases, some of which have fallen under the Endangered Species Act, where the Supreme Court, and I think maybe like a district court, has, has both ruled that nature itself, or so basically Article 3 of our constitutions gives basically like grant standing to a, a couple different groups people and like sets the requirements for what you need to have standing. And the Supreme Court, I'm pretty sure it was the Supreme Court, but I could be getting my facts wrong, okay. said in a couple of court cases that Article 3 of the Constitution does not necessarily prohibit nature having its own standing. Yep. <laughs> but um, but it does not, but it does not like grant nature legal standing also. Okay, so, so it's, it's not really saying one way or the other. Yeah, and so basically the Supreme Court has said this is not like an impossible notion, but they have basically con con called upon Congress to have some sort of like congressional act that decides this. Sure. Because being in the judicial branch, they don't really want to like create law. Miss, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, yeah. but I want to underscore something for our audience because I, I, I know some of you out there, because I've talked about this issue with you before, I know some of you are familiar with this, but I, I suspect uh, some of you may not uh, be as familiar. Here's the deal. We as individual people, human beings in this country, have living, uh, have legal rights as living entities. So do corporations, codified in the 1890s. So if we're getting hung up on, well, we shouldn't extend legal rights to anything other than human beings, we've already done that. We did that yeah. well over 100 years and ago. And with universities and municipalities and ships and yes, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of yeah. objects and entities. Yeah. So since that's happening, and clearly, I, I, I dare anybody to 
to argue that there are no negative outcomes to the situation we face where corporations have the rights of legal entities. I dare y'all. This is a dare. Uh, so that said, perhaps one of the ways we need to be creatively, proactively, carefully thinking about how to help rebalance our situation is by extending these rights and this voice fullness to living entities found in nature. Yeah, I completely agree. And if we don't like the idea at all, if we think that only humans should have legal rights, well, let's think about what about seven generations from now, humans. And let's think about uh, perhaps the rights that have been extended to the corporations need to be reined in. Uh, that would be a whole nother take on the same set of uh, ethical issues that we're discussing. Yeah, and really, I think, I mean, honestly, I don't know what will happen in the future. Obviously, we can't predict the future, but I think that the rights of nature and like granting legal rights to nature, legal standing to nature could be the defining rights issue of our time. So like in the 60s and 70s, maybe it was civil rights that was the defining issue. But I think this period could see the rights of nature being the defining issue. And maybe in like 70 yeah. years, people will, be, yeah. people will be really like shocked that nature didn't have standing. They'll be like, what, what? they're crazy? Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I like that perspective. It reminds me of the, uh, the letter that Alex Steffen wrote that he imagines being written a uh, hundred years from now back to us in this time when many of us basically rose to the call to be heroes and to help heal our relationship with the living world, our relationship with each other and our communities. And it's a, it's a beautiful and inspiring uh, letter. I encourage you all to check it out. You know, I'm struck so many of us are mobilizing around the world to help take care of our living ecosystems, uh, to help heal in communities. And this kind of work that's being done is so important, Addison. And I'm, I'm curious, you're obviously a, a young man and uh, in the midst of your uh, formal education. And what what brought you into this? What what was it that uh, took you in this direction when you could have gone so many other directions? Yeah, so I was actually, this was, it was, I guess, about a year ago, and I was studying abroad through my university in New Zealand with my girlfriend and two of my friends, like one of my best friends from high school and another friend. Um, and we were all just at university there, and I guess when classes ended, I think, we took a road trip up to the North Island of New Zealand, which is where the Wanganui River is. And previously in one of our classes, we sort of, we learned about how the New Zealand government granted legal personage to the Wanganui River. And to be honest, I, when I first learned about it, I thought it was pretty cool, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like shocked by it or anything. But then we spent five days basically canoeing and kayaking down the river and then camping on like the, the hills that sort of went into the river. Um, and I think during that time, I, I guess I sort of thought about it more and maybe talked about it with my friends more. And that was when it kind of struck me how cool this idea was of granting legal standing to nature and how sort of obvious it was also and how it like really should exist. And so after that trip, basically, I started researching it more when I was back in at, at our university in the South Island. And then, and then when I got back to Yale, I started to get more involved. So I started working or interning for the Earth Law Center, which is a, it's kind of like an international group that's working on a bunch of rights of nature campaigns around the world. And they're working, or we're working on a 
a textbook right now to give to law schools at, cool. in the next spring. It's, and it's like an earth law textbook. Oh, nice. um, and I'm helping out a little bit with that. And then I, at Yale, I hosted like a, a Rights of Nature panel where we had a few lawyers, like a, a lawyer from Ecuador named Hugo Echeverria, who has represented sharks in the Galapagos using rights of nature. Wow. Because Ecuador was actually the first country in the world to recognize the rights of nature okay. in their constitution. And that was in 2008, so it was kind of like groundbreaking. Yep. Um, so I guess I've gotten a little bit of all the rights of nature at Yale. And later this summer, I'm actually going to Ecuador on behalf of a grant that my environmental studies major at Yale gave me to research rights of nature in Ecuador for my senior thesis project. Oh, wonderful. And so that should be really interesting. Yeah. So I hope to sort of like learn more about the rights of nature and learn, especially more, learn more about the legal challenges and precedents that have to be beaten, basically. Right. And it's such an important set of structural issues that we're dealing with. You know, I want to I wanna make sure that we share something with the audience that is really important to understand. Yes, we have the Clean Water Act. Yes, we have the Clean Air Act. Yes, we have the Endangered Species Act. And guess what has occurred in yes. the few decades since then? We have been conducting an all-out chemical poison warfare on the lands from coast to coast of this beautiful nation in the name of agriculture specifically, among many other arenas. Specifically in terms of agriculture, we have been dumping millions and millions of pounds and gallons of toxic chemicals on the landscape every year for decades and decades. And it has created a dead zone of so many square miles at the mouth of the Mississippi River where it flows into the Gulf of Mexico. I think the area of the dead zone is now larger than at least one of the states in the Union. This is the reality. One of the things legally we have not done well in this country is incorporate the precautionary principle into our framework. One that says, hey, if we don't really know what the negative consequences are going to be, we need to be careful and not create a situation where we realize those negative consequences inadvertently. In Europe, much of the law there has moved in the direction of the precautionary principle. So before certain pharmaceutical drugs, before certain agricultural chemicals, before certain consumer goods chemicals can be introduced into the marketplace, much more testing and assurance has to be established that these are indeed safe and benign yeah. for us and the rest of the living creatures whom we share our environs with. In this country, what we've done instead is tilted the scales way in the direction of favoring returns, uh, financial returns to existing capital, shareholders, stockholders, etc. That has to come back into balance. And we, ha we have to, one way or another, yeah. stop poisoning ourselves and our environments. And I applaud you at a young age with so many options in front of you to be choosing to do this kind of work. I imagine there are probably other things you could be doing that would allow you to make a lot more money and you're choosing something that is of greater benefit to much more people in the world 
to the future and to this living planet and I applaud you, you're a hero. Oh, nice. You're uh, a hero for the future <laughs> and it's important to recognize that. Thanks, I appreciate that. And I think, I guess that's an important thing about Rights of Nature is that in terms of talking about, or what, what, what everything you just mentioned, is that I think Rights of Nature can really help find that balance between humans and our destruction of the environment and our use of the environment. And I think it's really important to highlight that that like human rights coincide like almost exactly with environmental rights I think because we basically we subsist off like everyone knows that we subsist off of the environment like without the environment we would not exist and so I think by combining like a human right to a healthy environment with the rights of the environment itself you really can create like an ideal space to have a conversation where you can really like formulate what's best for the community and the environment. Yes, absolutely. It's so important yeah. to have that. Yeah. And I guess also, this is a bit of a different track, but I think it's important to note that the rights of nature has like legal, or it has, it has like a strong history to it as well. And so there are like really, there are people who are like really respected in US politics and around the world that have really supported the rights of nature. So like in 1971 or two, I think, this law professor from USC named Christopher Stone published Should Trees Have Standing? And that has been the seminal work that has basically sparked the rights of nature movement, which has also taken the form of other names like Earth Jurors like that. But as soon as Christopher Stone published this, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, who's the longest serving Supreme Court Justice, he's not on the board anymore, but who was the longest serving Supreme Court Justice of all time, he cited Stone's work and basically called for nature to have legal standing in our courts in um, in Sierra Club versus Morton, which was a 1972 place where Walt Disney was trying to, or Walt Disney Company was trying to build a ski resort in in uh, what was it called Mineral King Valley in California, and Justice Justice Douglas basically said that Mineral King Valley should have standing in its own right to sue on its behalf. Okay. And so that was sort of like a seminal moment, I think, wow, for the rights of nature. Because, that's an amazing precedent. Yeah, and that was a Supreme Court justice who yep. basically argued for the rights of nature. And it was a dissenting opinion, so it was okay. not... Yep. I think, actually, the ski resort that was proposed, was not, it did not end up going through, but it was on different legal means, like procedural means or something. Yep. But it sort of ignited that, along with Stone's Should Trees Have Standing work, sort of ignited the modern-day rights of nature movement, which is, there are, like, a lot of countries around the world, like Ecuador, Bolivia, India... New Zealand that have enacted some sort of rights of nature laws. And in the U.S. there are loads of communities, like Boulder is hoping to be one of them, and Longmont, Colorado has enacted a, a climate bill of rights. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania enacted a rights of nature law that basically banned fracking within the city. Santa Monica has a rights of nature law within like a climate ordinance, or a sustainability rights ordinance. So there's lots of different communities in the U.S. and in other places around the world that are sort of like brought up the rights of nature and really believed in it. And it, even in like the Green Party of, of the UK in like 2015 or something, I forget the year, but they sort of adopted the rights of nature in their, in their campaign push. So I think it really, it just shows, goes to show that like, it's not some sort of totally alt-right or alt-left, like extremist yeah. view towards protecting the environment, but right. it's something that is really like founded in like strong beliefs. Yes, that's beautiful. I want to make sure to acknowledge our sponsors uh, before we 
wrap up our discussion, Addison. So um, let me do this. Let me uh, first of all thank all of the uh, ambassadors out there and the folks who are part of our monthly giving program. Uh, your donations are going a very long way in making this and other podcast episodes possible, as well as our monthly Pulse meetups where we are building soil, working in community, planting trees, connecting with folks from all walks of life. And uh, if you haven't yet joined our monthly giving program, you can do so by going to the website whyonearth.org and you'll see at the uh, top level navigation a button there for support or donate. You go right to it. It'd be great to have you on board. Also, as a token of gratitude for all the great work y'all are doing, including what you're learning, uh, you can use the code MOBILIZE to get free downloads of all of our ebook and audiobook resources. Check that out. That's also at whyonearth.org. And uh, in addition to the individuals supporting this work, I want to thank the sponsors and partners who are making this possible and who made our recent uh, summit possible, massively mobilizing sustainability. And uh, those include Earth Coast Productions, Waylay Waters, the Brad and Lindsay Lidge Family Foundation, Equal Exchange, Patagonia, Purium, and the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. And, and we'll make sure our friends at ISSP know about this episode. It's gonna be, I think, of particular importance to them because they, they, I'm a member, we are a worldwide body of executives and professionals doing sustainability work in all kinds of different corporations, municipal governments, university uh, governing bodies, and many of them uh, are chief sustainability officers. And my sense is that this conversation is so important, is, is uh, paramount and germane to the work that they're doing in those different uh, institutions and organizations. So we'll be sure to do a special share with them. And uh, Addison, I, I just, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Uh, and I thought it would be really cool if, if you don't mind me uh, yeah, asking sure. you to read something. This is the statement in support of the rights of the Boulder Creek watershed. Uh, it would be really cool to share with our audience uh, what, what this has to say. Yeah, so I guess just a little bit of background about this is that here in Boulder, this group that I'm working for called Boulder Rights of Nature is currently campaigning to grant legal standing and legal rights to the Boulder Creek watershed, which is this well, this river is part of the watershed. Yeah. Um, and recently we've been working on a campaign to get organizational support from environmental groups in Boulder and even like some coffee shops and some restaurants in Boulder to basically support our campaign as we are submitting to the city council an ordinance and a resolution to grant legal standing to the Boulder Creek watershed. And so this is basically, this is not the actual ordinance that we're submitting, but this is the statement of support that organizations are signing in support of the campaign, basically. So I'll just go ahead and read some of it. Whereas governments around the world are beginning to recognize the inherent rights of nature, including the rights of specific natural systems such as rivers, mountains, and entire watersheds. Whereas recognizing the rights of nature also benefits humans who rely upon clean air, water, and soil to survive, and who benefit from a healthy relationship with nature. Whereas the county of Boulder and all cities and towns therein 
have long embraced new approaches to protect and restore native ecosystems. Now, therefore, the undersigned organizations hereby do declare as follows. We officially support the campaign to recognize Boulder Creek Watershed as a living entity possessing legal rights. We pledge to work with all governments located within Boulder County, as well as all organizations and citizens therein to create a new legal framework that recognizes and implements the rights of the Boulder Creek Watershed. Upon recognition of these rights, we also pledge to work to promote the rights and interests of the Boulder Creek Watershed through our organization's work. And we've got about, right now we've got about like 17 organizations within Boulder that have supported this and we're aiming to get like 30 or 50 before we submit our actual resolution to the city council. That's absolutely beautiful and I, I'm so excited that uh, many in our uh, Y on Earth community ambassador framework right around here are doing a lot of stewardship work in this watershed and even right along the creek all the way up to the high country. And uh, what a beautiful uh, thing we can get involved in right here in this community. And our, our hope is that uh, not, not only can we support this effort here, but we can uh, help others in communities elsewhere uh, to pursue similar uh, frameworks and efforts uh, in places all around the country and all around the world. And, uh, you know, Addison, I uh, just want to make sure to give you an opportunity to mention anything that I haven't had a chance to ask you about yet. And uh, I know you've got a very busy schedule with everything you're doing and <laughs> appreciate you taking the time. Not and, too busy. Uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be able to speak with you today. But before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, uh. I guess if people are particularly interested in the rights of nature and maybe think that it's a really cool tool or really cool like strategy to protect the environment, there are a couple of resources out there that are really particularly helpful in sort of pursuing that. And so one of them is Earth, the Earth Law Center, the group that I am helping work on a textbook project with. Um, they've got a really neat website that highlights all of their campaigns and you can sign up to volunteer for them. And they've got a really good like resources page um, there's also a website called the UN Harmony with Nature Network that has sort of highlighted the, the history of rights of nature as it goes through different communities and as different laws have been enacted. And there's another group called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. It goes by CELDF for short, for short C-E-L-D-F. And they, they are really like at the forefront of American rights of nature movements and they have a really good, they've got a good website that highlights the work that they do and also shows ways that you can get involved through like democracy training schools and stuff like that. Um, so I think those three resources are really good to kind of explore more. And also if you're in Boulder, the Boulder Rights of Nature group, which also has a really nice website with a lot of resources and like campaigns that are going on, is a really good way to sort of get involved in the Rights of Nature movement. And that's boulderrightsofnature.org. Um, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, and I was really uh, impressed by the map that you shared with me, and I don't know if that's uh, a public resource or not, but I love maps, and I love seeing where uh, communities are taking these actions all around the world, and uh, it'd be great to, to be able to share that with folks. Yeah, and, uh, you know, with our ambassadors, we're going to be adding mapping uh, to show where ambassador groups are active, where we're doing soil stewardship, where we're planting trees, and it'd be really fun to figure out some sort of uh, you know collaboration or at least be able to share the the map that's showing where communities are enacting uh, rights of nature yeah yeah so for part of my work this past six months I was working on a map for the Earth Law Center that 
basically highlighted where rights of nature has been enshrined in law. And so it's, yeah, it's on the website of the Earth Law Center under what is Earth Law, and it's also on Boulder Rights of Nature website. But Great. it's definitely like a public tool that yeah. is meant to be sort of like a continuing work in progress. Sure. It's meant to be yeah. always added. You know? that's, that's absolutely beautiful. And if folks want to get a hold of you, Addison, what's the best way? Are you on social media or? Uh, yeah, but I guess the best way is through email, probably. Okay. A, a luck at earthlaw.org. Great. My email. A luck at earthlaw.org. Yeah. Well, Addison, thanks so much for visiting with yeah, us. Yeah, thank today. you for having this me. Such important work. Yeah, thank, really, thanks for having me. It's a great podcast that you have going. And it's great work that you're doing at Why on Earth. Thanks, Addison. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.